Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Tom Emmett, Executive Director of the Historic General Dodge House in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Tom Emmett was born in Colorado to a family with roots in Wyoming, Nebraska, and Iowa. He grew up along the Little Thompson River on a small quarter horse ranch, and as the son of a United Airlines pilot, he was privileged to see the world. Tom holds a master's in modern European history and a master's in divinity. His diverse career has included being an antiques dealer, financial planner, pension plan president, senior pastor, and currently executive director of the historic General Dodge House. Some fun facts about Tom include, he has climbed every mountain in the Rocky Mountains National Park and the Indian Peaks Wilderness, save two. He plays the cello. He is a collector of antique maps and of stamps from New Zealand. He speaks Spanish. Let's learn more about Tom now. Tom, welcome to the show. Good to be here, my friend. So much, so much, so eclectic. Um, it's hard to know where to start, but I think the the adventurous and youthful spirit in me wants me to uh, ask you about growing up as a son of a United Airlines pilot. So tell me more about your adventures. What, what a privileged life I had from a very young age, got to travel all around the world. And I must confess, I got used to first class. And, and to, to this day, I, I complain if I don't get at least premium economy. And so I'm spoiled. And I think the neatest thing about traveling the world is it invites us to open ourselves up and see the other. It hardwires a degree of empathy, I think. I had the privilege to travel to most of the countries in Europe to include uh, riding my a bicycle from um, across the Czech Republic and Slovakia uh, into Hungary, which was brilliant. And to see the Tatra Mountains is amazing. It's like the Grand Tetons. Google them if you've not seen the High Tatras. But more than anything, it created in me a thirst for the other. And so it was a strange thing. Um, it was the early 2000s, and I was in my church office. I was an interim pastor in Fort Collins. And, and out of nowhere, um, God told me to go to Mexico and learn Spanish. Now, I had no desire to go to Mexico, and I had no desire to learn Spanish, which told me it was a real calling. And so within two weeks, I was in Mexico for three months backpacking. I thought that, that maybe the good Lord had an intention for me to do something special with that. But, but really, it was for me to develop a, a deep empathy for the other. It changed me and the way I think about people. And in this era of dualistic conflict, it's so important to have empathy for the other. How old were you when you were traveling to Europe and these other places as, as you know, uh, the son of a United Airlines pilot? Teenager. And then I, I went to Mexico in my 30s to learn the Spanish. So as a teenager, I, I'm just going to play the teenage stereotype. I doubt you were aware at the time that you were 
sort of building these life insights? Or, or were you? Did you encounter people in those experiences traveling and, and realize that this was a rare moment to grow as a human? Well, I, I think I've always had what I would call a, a good museum problem. When my parents would take me traveling or they'd allow me to go on my own, which they did, um, I would always seek out museums and history. So you mentioned cycling in the Czech, well, Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic. Was it the Czech Republic at the time or was it Czechoslovakia? It had just broken up into the two countries. So this is the early 90s. Okay. And they were very excited and they, they, they loved Americans. And so something, this, this happened many, many times, and just charming people. Um, so they would say, oh, you're from America. Do you know California? And I would say, yes. Do you know Los Angeles? And I would say, yes. Do you, my, do you know my friend John? Uh, and, and they would price bananas individually, very excited about capitalism and, and pricing everything on its own. And, um, and it, it was neat to see a culture released from communism and so excited for a new era. Are there any other moments that sort of stand out? There's, there's a couple of things I'd like to share. Um, one is every now and then in rural Slovakia, we, we, we would bicycle through a village and it would be empty and ruined. Think ghost town. And we'd ask our, our guides who were driving a van to maintain our bikes and feed us and, and spoil us. So let's be honest. We were Americans exploring their country. We were being spoiled. And they would say, well, that's an old Jewish village emptied during the Second World War. And um, I met a fellow in Hungary in Budapest, and we talked for a while. He was an activist. He was a pro-gay activist and a pro-women's right activist. And you know, he would constantly get, get beat up um, and, and, and be on the, the wrong side of fights. And I asked him, I said, Florin, that was his name, Florin, are you happy? And he said, oh, Tom, that's an American question. And that, that was life-changing. Are you happy? Well, Tom, that's an American question. And then I asked him, well, what do you like most about America? And he said, your volunteerism. We don't have that here. And, and that is something very special about North America, I think, is our spirit of volunteerism. You were born in Colorado and born on a, a small quarter horse ranch. What was your family life like and how were you raised there? Yeah, uh, it was a pleasure farm. Uh, um, and so uh, I had the opportunity to help my dad move pipe to irrigate the pastures, um, to, to wait all night when a, when a horse had a foal. Lots of cats and kittens, um, dogs motorcycles. We had a river going through the place. And, and so it was really a privileged, privileged life. Um, you know, guns, um, shooting things. I'm kind of this progressive liberal that grew up in a conservative environment. And it's a, it's a great dichotomy. Continuing to build up this 
picture, you also mentioned that you uh, have hiked so many of these mountains, and I had no idea about that. Um, where did that urge come from? What does that look like for you doing that? Well, I, I think being alone in, in the mountains on a high place, it's a great privilege. It's exhausting. And when you get to the top, and of course, there's what we call false peaks. You think you're there, but you're not. You think you're there, but you're not. And then you're finally there. And you can't spend very much time there because thunderstorms will soon roll in and you've got to get off the peak. And then uh, I think going down a mountain is worse than going up. It's, it's hard on the body. I think the beautiful things, I mean, you can stand from Mount Audubon and see these little tiny slivers. And those are the skyscrapers of Denver. I mean, how cool is that? And you can be sunburned in an instant. And I always loved hiking alone. I'd rather not go with friends. And even when the cell phones came out, I, I, I didn't like taking the cell phone. There's something wonderful about knowing if you fall or get hurt, you're in trouble. And that's exhilarating. And uh, I miss the mountains. I mean, I'm no longer acclimated. I'm not in the shape I used to be. I'm 50 years old. I'm no longer in my 20s or my 30s. But they say there's three kinds of hiking or, or, or camping. Uh, ones where you enjoyed it, you enjoyed it, and the story's fun to tell. Ones where you didn't enjoy it, but the story is fun to tell. And ones where you didn't enjoy it, and the story is not fun to tell, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Have you had all three? Or do your- yes. Okay. <laughs> and would you like to share uh, one of them yeah, with me? Well, yeah, so a, a story where it wasn't fun, and I don't like telling it, is is going across by myself on a, on an ice pack. Um, the, the ice collapsed, and, and I fell right into a bunch of cold water and got sucked in and, and wondered for a moment if I was going to make it, and I did, but boy, was it sure cold. Um, when you do everything wrong, and you're no, you, you know you're doing everything wrong, and you get in trouble, that's pretty embarrassing. But, but also climbing up the side of a waterfall and seeing columbines blooming right there next to you. How wonderful. How wonderful. mentioned this experience in Mexico, this calling that you heard to go there. So I want to ask about divinity and deciding to study divinity. What was it that called you to go yeah. and study? So I was in financial planning and had some great mentors and was doing well. And then 9-11 um, happened. And, and the company I worked for, All America Financial, formerly State Mutual Life, 
was not able to sell policies anymore because um, of, of their finances. And clients couldn't make stock trades because the offices that we made stock trades through were in the trade centers. And, and I found out that I contracted HIV all, all, all in that week. And so I had a complete breakdown and quit my job and got rid of my cars because cars are expensive um, and bought a container of antiques from China and opened a part-time antique business and enrolled in seminary and, and got a full ride scholarship through a Methodist seminary, Isle of School of Theology in Denver. And for the next three years, led a very simple life. Um, and, and it was great, um, you know, riding the bus everywhere, um, counting every penny, going to food pantries, borrowing money for books. It was great. It was great because life was very real. And I'm probably romanticizing it now, right? Um, money is no concern for us. Um, I'm comfortable, have a lot of possessions on my third career. So I'm probably romanticizing it, which, which we tend to do. If we couldn't romanticize life, well, we might not keep going on it. huh? Um, You're painting this picture for me of... Um, you know the world, the world of finance, and whatever degree of comfort you found then, and then you shared that you found out mm-hmm. that you had HIV, um, and you're called into this life of faith, life of studying faith. You mentioned a simple life. Was there a stripping away, not only of tangible elements of your life, but also intangible elements. Well, I, I, I think that one thing that people do when they're in crisis, and this is certainly my norm, uh, is that in the midst of crisis, I have found it useful to create a crisis and, and to create an interminable event. So I must act. And so um, sometimes, I think oftentimes, times human beings, and certainly this human being, will create a crisis to precipitate a change, if that makes sense. I'm not sure it's that noble. There's no intentional stripping away, but rather the sense of desperation. And that's when God is clearest to us, is when we're hurting and desperate. And that's certainly where I was. Did you have a a sense of faith when you were younger and, and before deciding to go to seminary, or did this suddenly appear as an epiphany for you? No, no. My parents took me to church. My parents took me to church when I was a little boy, because that's what you do if you're good parents. And I loved it. And I would give them a hard time for not going to church on Sunday. Um, I absolutely loved it. But the Presbyterian minister, uh, Reverend Churchill, was a right-wing, hate-filled man, um, his first wife had come out as lesbian, and then later his daughter, and he was angry at gays, and he would preach against gays and look right at me, that son of a b- And that hurt deeply, but it didn't make me turn from religion. It made me turn into it. I think one of the wonderful things about being gay or queer is that it causes within us this desire to always question authority. And not question it for its own sake, but really ask deeply, why is it the way it is? Why am I the way I am? 
why is God the way God is? And I, I think that's best advantage of being a queer person or, or any person in the minority voice is that you have to ask deeply why. And it's not rebellion. It's, it's profound reflection. What has that journey been like for you, Tom, when much of religious practice has, as you've already indicated, tended towards prejudice for people that are in some form of minority? Um, you've identified as gay. How has that journey been for you with those kind of pressures, whether specifically related to you know, faith and the church or generally? I'll answer that by telling a quick story. In college, I went to a Presbyterian church and, and, they, and I was very involved and they were progressive and they invited me to be an elder, basically serving on the board of directors. And the church was ready to split over it because other people in the church weren't happy because it was, it's technically heresy um, against the book of order. And, and so I said, I'm done. And, and I was done. And so for seven years, I never darkened the door of a church. And then one night, I went out to a gay bar in Denver called Paradise Garage, met a guy named Eddie, and we, we enjoyed the evening. Uh, next morning, he said, I'd love to take you out to breakfast, Tom, but, but um, I've got to go to church. Yes, and I was intrigued, and so I, I, I had him take me to church with him, and I gave my life to Jesus that morning. I found a community, uh, Metropolitan Community Church, or MCC, was founded on the idea that Everyone needs a church home. And, and it was, it's, it's quite a conservative movement in, in, in so many ways, too. Uh, we believe in speaking in tongues um, and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit and in healings and in miracles and, and, and uh, founded by a Pentecostal minister. And so I always like to say that God brought me back to God through a one-night stand. And, and only God would be that subversive. And, and, and this would deeply offend some people, but I don't, I don't care. But God is that subversive that God will use sex and desire to bring people back to right relationship with each other and God. And Eddie and I are still friends now many, many, many decades later. I've read you describe yourself as an iconoclast which in some ways doesn't fit this idea of someone who is uh, faithfully observant. Uh, or maybe not faithfully observant, but um, perhaps of faith, because we tend to, I tend to assume faith comes with a set of, you know, r rigorous and rigid instructions on how one should behave and believe. How do you, as it were, square that circle? Yeah, I, I think the important question is not what we believe, but how we believe. You know, it's easy to say what we believe, we can just make that up. But to, say, but to say how we believe this is more important. And, and, and Jesus was subversive. He said, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be a master, be a servant. Sell everything you own and give it to the poor. Um, I don't have the guts to follow Jesus. I don't have that kind of courage. But I have enough courage to be influenced by the living Christ. And so for me, Christianity is designed to break down barriers and open up relationships and heal rather than control and guide. Um, it's about radical community. And, and radical community means being in a relationship with people that deeply irritate us 
including our own authentic selves. I'm really glad you mentioned that because you not only have developed your own sense of faith, but by studying divinity and then assuming a senior pastor role and you know serving in a sort of a more official church capacity, your role then requires you to perhaps be in radical community more um, courageously. And I'm wondering, what was that experience like for you spending some years ministering with a congregation? I had the honor of spending a dozen years, a wee bit more, um, in a downtown Omaha church. MCC tends to attract broken, needy people and the homeless. And so we were in the midst of it. And I'm really glad, I'm okay saying this, in this year of COVID and the appropriate rioting we had this summer, I was glad not to be a pastor. I'm really happy now to be a museum director. And after being an activist for decades, it's, it's good to just love on history. The, the break is good. Uh, I was tired. But it's always good to leave a party before you know it's over. And I, I think I managed that. I didn't stay too long. Since childhood, had this love of history, the sense of um, imagination and ideas that are conjured by artifacts of history in some way. Um, so, is is that the spirit and the motivation that pulled you towards your your current role as executive yeah. director of the historic General Dodge House? I think I have a profound love of narrative. Artifacts come and go. Um, you know, we have, we have nothing remaining of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. All, all of their personal items are gone, but we have their narrative. I love being able to be a caretaker of a narrative. You know, I, I will soon be dead, right? This life is incredibly short. Um, I hope to have another 30 or 40 years of it, but I'll soon be dead and, and no one will remember my name. That's okay. But my legacy will be to carry the narratives and they're complex narratives of, of General Dodge and his family and his legacy and of our community and pass them on to the next generation of folks who will forget me as they should. Um, and this is actually the humility, I think, that comes with uh, being a musician, because your job as a musician is to recreate the composer's intent. 
I'm not the artist. I'm a recreative craftsman. And I think that's what narrative is too. And so music and history and preaching and scripture and myth, they're all together because they invite us to share stories. And I, I terribly miss Garrison Keillor, the Pray Home Companion, right? It's, it's been a long week in Lake Wobegon, and he would tell you a story that is made up but is true. And I get to tell stories that are true but allow people to make up new possibilities for their own life. What does it mean to be a change agent? What does it mean to be a person that experiences all this pain and all this confusion in this world and, and to walk in the midst of this messiness? I mean, it's a pretty horrible life and a pretty wonderful place. And so narrative, all we have in the end is our words. That's it. Narrative is everything. Would you, for listeners, paint a picture of the historic General Dodge House? Yeah, to, to walk into the General Dodge House is to enter a time capsule. You walk into the Dodge House and it's filled with original items. About three quarters of the items on the first floor are original and about a, a third on the remaining floors are original. And so you literally get to see the past. And, and we don't tell our visitors you know, not to touch or don't do this or do that, but it really invites them to listen to the narrative. And our docents take between two and three hours with a group and people are captivated. And so you walk into this second empire French mansion built by the same architect that built Terrace Hill, the governor's mansion in Iowa, and, and built many of Chicago's pre-fire buildings. And you literally walk back in time and it's not about the past. When we walk back in time, we're actually in conversation with the present and the future. Because when we think about how people lived yesterday, we're thinking of, well, how might we live tomorrow? And why are we and how are we living now? What does that mean? And even if we're having that conversation with ourselves subterraneously, um, it's happening. And that's why people love good museums and why good museums love people. What are the kind of conversations that people do have, whether they're your own or those you hear other people having? It's a hard time right now to do history because we are so polarized and dualistic in our thinking. Um, right now, our culture is seeking simplicity and, and cancel culture is alive and well, both with people on the left and the right, all of whom I find very dangerous. Um, I, I want to have difficult conversations about Dodge's complexity. For his time, he was, he can be called a feminist. Um, for his time, he can be called progressive on race. Um, for his time, he can be called um, very savage against Native Americans, yet late in life, he counts some as, as his closest friends. He's messy and complex, just like you and me. I think that's part of it. When we acknowledge the complexity and messiness of history, we also give ourselves permission to honor our own. And when we do that, we realize how deeply flawed and hypocritical we are and um, how hard we are on each other. And so I think gracious conversations about our messy past, our messy selves, will help us have a less messy future.
what is the future for places like yours? I, I think museums are challenged with the same thing that churches are challenged with, that brick and mortar stores are, are challenged with. And, and so we have to be highly adaptive. Um, the good news is the product we're selling is narrative. The product we're selling is a relationship with the past, present, and, and future. And so that's good news. But right now, I'd say we're in hibernation. And I'd say that state and the federal government have done a good job caring for arts and culture establishments um, overall. I can't wait for the pandemic to be open because we're going to have a lot of parties. We're going to have a lot of events. And um, it's going to be a great time, but not yet. So I, I find it interesting that on the one hand, your product is narrative, but there's this sort of um, cheap thrill of narrative also being sold by these other technologies. It sort of makes me worried. I, I, I don't know how to um, extricate ourselves from the simple social media-driven narrative for the more complex, nuanced, deeper narrative that, that you hold at the General Dodge House. Well, I don't know that I have the answer to that. I do know... For certain that um, doubt is not the opposite of faith, certainty is. Certainty is, is very, very dangerous. And, and the reason why so many museums have lost authority is because they've engaged in narratives of certainty and, and clarity and watered them down. And, and what I find is, the and, and it's not better or worse, but the older generation intakes the object and falls in love with the narrative. The younger generation intakes the narrative and then falls in love with the objects in the museum. And so this is fascinating. And so I find I have to lure the younger generation by using Halloween, for example, get them in for Halloween, a candlelight tour, and give them the narrative. And then they want the objects. Our elders give them the objects, and then they want the narrative. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm being dualistic and a little certain in my language. I understand the paradox and hypocrisy in that, but we're a little human being hypocrisy vessels, so that's okay. Um, but when we can get into storytelling and you see people get excited about the narrative, the story of General Dodge, the story of Council Bluff, the story of the objects, that's, that's the kind of same high you get when you're delivering a really good sermon or when you've put your 20 years into a piece by Bach and can play it with some kind of, 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 of competency. It's, it's a real joy. And you ever wonder If days like these last One another with the feeling pass. Would you find out with me if it all starts to crumble? Or search the pieces. It's not for me 
to say goodbye You yourself have this inclination, this urge towards uh, objects and artifacts and antiques. And I, I wonder if you too are going through stuff to find narrative or if there's some other inclination in you, some other urge to collect things. Yeah, I, I'm definitely an object person. Gosh, I'm lost for words. I, I, I don't know what it's, it's a chicken or the egg. Is it the object or the narrative? I'm not sure for me. I do think it's it's neat to hold something in your hand and hand it to someone else and enjoy the connection it creates. Collecting, I think everyone collects something. I think it's part of it is our is our drive for dominance as a species. Part of it is our drive to understand. But I've never really given much thought to why human beings desire to collect things. I think it's about this this messy thing about both trying to control and understand, but I'm not sure. You've mentioned in your bio antique maps and stamps from New Zealand, and I'm wondering if there are particular objects that really, really call to you. Perhaps collecting is is a way for us to deal with our mortality. Um, I think my biggest regret, and I wouldn't call it a regret, um, but perhaps the greatest absence in my life is I never had children. Um, for many people, children is how they see themselves as living on. I think collecting beautiful things and learning about them allows us a sense of timelessness that, that, that we know is beyond this mortal coil. Because life is really short. And it's quite brutal. And I, well, I'm afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of death because of my faith. Perhaps collecting things allows us that sense of timelessness. I don't know. You collect antique maps, and I'm wondering, does that say something about you, that these, these are um, geographic representations? Well, it's, it's to see how the world is put together. Um, my father, and I helped him a little bit. It was too tedious for me, but used to rebuild pocket watches, and I'll be inheriting. I've, I've inherited his collection. And so I, I think antique maps and stamps, it, it's a place in time, right? Um, same with music. When I pick up my cello and I, I, I play Bach, I'm with him in some small way in that place in time in the, in the, in the 1740s. And, and so same with a stamp, uh, whether it's been canceled or not, if it's been canceled, where was it canceled? Or same with a map. You can see the folds. You can see the, where the plates were pressed on the paper. You can see where the, the, where the painter would, would re-wet their brush. You can see the watermarks in the paper. It's a place in time. Most things, I think, uh, to think of Paul Tillich's writings, go back to our, this existential crisis that we will soon not exist. You mentioned earlier chicken or egg. And I, in describing you, want to say chicken and egg. I'm going to read um, what you candidly provided to me as a description of, of who you are. You said that you have a great appreciation and love for the elders of our society. Uh, seek out mentors. You're a good listener, always ready to change your mind, willing to apologize. And you are by nature extremely iconoclastic and irreverent. Yet at the same time, you love continuity and order. And you say to be human, after all, is to live in paradox and contradiction. 
I feel like you have such a diverse set of experiences and such a diverse set of views and beliefs on life. Do you feel as if there's any tension between living this paradox? Do you feel as if um, there's a through line to your life that makes it all understandable and and um, consistent? I just wonder if you have a, a clarity about sort of who you are with so many diverse elements to your lived experience. I think that um, that continuity that threads my own complexity is the love of God. The universe is a rough place, but in the end, it is love. The fact that we can experience pain, that we have this free will, is, is only. God made the world to teach us how to love. That's, that's, that's really it. And by love, I mean right relationship, you know, connection. Amazing grace, how sweet. The sound that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind. But now I see T'was grace that taught My heart to fear And grace my fears Relieved How precious did That grace appear The hour I first believed is there anything you would, if you went back, is there anything that you would do over? I, I would tell my younger self to, to say that, you know, love your body, you know, love your gay body, be kind and gentle to yourself. One thing that I think a lot of gay people from my generation have in common, I don't think the kids struggle with it as much now, is we're awfully hard on ourselves, gay and lesbian people. Um, and the advantages, we're also awfully critical of the world, um, but we're not good to ourselves. Not that being born that way is a bad thing or a bad life, but we allowed others to convince us when we were kids in the 80s that we were, there was something wrong with us, and that never goes away. And so I would tell my younger self to be kind and gentle on myself, and that would always be my advice, which is not the same as a pass, <laughs> but kind and gentle. Did you know at a young age that you were gay? or And if you did, was it what was the experience of openly expressing that to the world and to yourself? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, most of us know it when we're, when we're kiddos, um, even if we don't have the name for it. Um, but, but, but thank God for, for wide open spaces where, friends and I could run off. 
Um, and so I think I've always had an all in attitude. And so in the early nineties in 1992, amendment two in Colorado was a big deal where, where it basically said you could discriminate against gay and lesbian people. And that's when I came out. And so I came out and immediately became the president of my college gay and lesbian alliance went and knocked on doors and tried to educate people and engaged in parades and protests. So it, it was all in immediately, which was wonderful, but also probably a little traumatic. Tom, I've never had the experience of um, telling the world at large that I'm not what I appear to be to them or, you know, society. I'm just basically your standard white middle-class cisgender man that's basically it i look like that is what i am i don't know what that's like to take a journey of decades in a society that has always lagged behind who you are and who you're telling society that you are so i i just don't know what that experience was like for you always perhaps lagging behind society's prejudice it's wonderful and horrible it's it's wonderful because you have an intimate community people that you would never have connected with well, were, were less bi, gay, queer. And, and, and so we have this community and, and also terror. Um, you know, am I going to get beat up? Um, and, and, and it happened. Um, the thrill of, of engaging in, in protest and, and the fear of your parents not loving you, which they did. They were great. Um, there's this, this quote I'd like to read to you, it's by Frank Browning. Um, uh, Frank Browning writes that the paradox of queerness is that it survives by continually collapsing and recreating itself. Traditional cultural separatists, black nationalists, radical feminists, Latin chauvinists, Hasidic communalists, secure their tribal meaning through the intermutability of their codes, rites, and rituals. Queer culturalists recognize and realize one another through disruption and sabotage of their inherited traditions. Employing the wit and the critical parody of camp, they unravel the hidden forgeries of their own inherited cultures and then self-consciously construct new cultural forgeries that they know are destined to dissolve. That is the essence and desire in queer paradox. To preserve is to disappear. The community of identity exists only in the state of transformation. In the culture of desire, there are no safe spaces. There was one phrase that stood out, which is to preserve is to disappear. And it really stood out to me just because we've been talking about history and artifact and antiques and collecting. To preserve is to disappear. That's very Jesus-y too. It seems in so many ways that you embrace everything in that quote and all the paradoxes and contradictions and complexities of life. And you've lived that way. I want to end with asking you a question that you asked this Hungarian person, Florin. You asked, are you happy? And so I'm going to ask you that question then. Are you happy? Uh, no. Um, no. Ha ha happiness is, is uh, as my friend Florin said, an American question. I seek to be content so that whether it's hot or cold, COVID or not, I'll be okay. But am I a happy person? No. 
Am I a sad person? No. But perhaps you've noticed during our time together, my eyes have been watering mostly, most of the time. And that's a great place. I can't remember her name, but the um, Brene Brown, who says, you know, we're most courageous when we're vulnerable. And so am I happy? No. Am I content most of the time? And am I vulnerable? Absolutely. I don't know if this is quite the context you meant it, Tom, but I love being in relationship with you. So I appreciate you holding this space and being open within it. Thank you. Well, thanks. What, a, what an experience. You know, we're, we're not often asked, at least I'm not, because I'm not that particularly important to talk about my life. So thanks for the opportunity for letting me reflect on my life. My guest today has been Tom Emmett, Executive Director of the Historic General Dodge House in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and obviously so, so, so much more than that. Tom, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Blessings. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.